We find ourselves in Ephesians chapter 1, verse 11. And the term predestination came up for the second time. And because of the amount of questions and need of clarification, I said, let's talk about this. A big part of the questioning is because of a doctrine that's preached by what are called Calvinists. And that doctrine has permeated the, the, the Calvary chapels as well. And it is a deterministic, fatalistic doctrine that says God determines everything. And before anything was created, he determined who would be saved, the elect, the predestined, and then everybody else, he also predestines to hell. And Calvin said that if we are mature Christians, we quit being childish, that we would understand that God is equally glorified in those he is fatalistically destined to hell as we would rejoice in us ourselves who are the elect of heaven. In, in my estimation, that is absolutely a horrendous teaching. They say if a man were to do that, that would be evil. But since God does this determining, it's all holy. But that would mean that God lives by a different moral standard than us who have been created in his image. And he does not do that. We're looking at a world around us created in his image because that's his image. That's his nature. And the Bible says his nature does not change. It's whether it's on earth or in heaven. It's the same yesterday, today, and forever. Who are the elect? Who are the predestined? In Calvinism, they're basically interchangeable terms. In the Bible, not so. The elect, according to the scriptures, and we did a whole study on this last week, the elect are those who believe in Jesus. God, before the foundation of the world, before earth was made, determined that whoever would believe in him would indeed become the elect of Christ. But that's up to man's free choice. It's his free will. God does not determine that. It would be evil if he did. And God is not evil. And so we are the elect in two different ways, the Bible tells us. The elect clearly in the scripture called the elect is the Jews, the children of Abraham, and Jesus. Jesus is called the elect the most. Well, it's been, we've been studying here in Ephesians 1 that when we receive Christ as our Savior, we believe in his name, we are now children of Abraham also. We'll go into this teaching at some time, but in Romans 9, it says not all of those who are, are, are children of Abraham are the called, are the elect, are the chosen. Not all of them are. And he, he says, you know, you, you got Isaac, but then you got Ishmael. Ishmael was equally a child of Abraham, the firstborn of Abraham, but he was not one who walked in the faith of our father Abraham. Then you got Jacob and Esau. Again, Esau was not one that chose the faith of his father Isaac, but yet Jacob did. And he goes on to say, and it's like that today. Those who are children of Abraham are not those of the DNA, but those who are of faith in Abraham. Now, as he goes on in Romans 9, 10, and 11, he says God still has a plan for Israel. He still never unelected them. There is a point in the tribulation period through the 144,000 Jews, 12,000 from each tribe that are prophets, the two witnesses in Jerusalem, and the gospel that goes out, there'll be many Jews that are saved and Gentiles, but the Jewish nation will be regained again in the millennial reign. 
And at that time, all the promises God made to Abraham and his descendants will be fulfilled in that thousand-year millennial reign. And then a new heavens and a new earth. And the Bible tells us that the new heavens and the new earth are set up very much honoring the 12 tribes of Israel and of God's elect. And so we are the elect of God to those who have the faith of Abraham. We are adopted as his kids. And so since the Jewish nation is the elect, we also are a part of that Jewish nation, are the elect. The other way we are the elect in that we are in Christ. It tells us in many different places, but I love John 17, where Jesus said, Father, as I am in you, and you are in me, that we would be in them and they in us in a perfect unity. Ephesians chapter 1, we're going to be there again in verse 13, where God has put his Holy Spirit in us as the guarantee of our election. So we are elect because we are in Christ, and Christ is the elect. We are the elect because we are in the faith of Abraham. We are the elect. So you could say there is a third category of the elect, and that is us believers, the church. We are the bride of Christ. We are a holy people. We are a chosen priesthood. We are kings and priests unto our God. And so we as New Testament believers are the elect as well. So the elect answers the question of the who. Who are the elect? We, the Jews, Jesus, and we, the church. And predestination answers the question of the what. And so we are now under Roman numeral tool there, looking and explaining today predestination. So the predestination is the what. All those who believe in Christ, God has determined ahead of time what he's going to do in their lives and through their lives. So in other words, let me explain it this way. I'm a football coach. And once all of the kids have signed up that want to play football, sign up, they'll then be a part of the team, the elect. But I've been working for the last six months on a plan from the beginning of the season to the end of the season, what I'm going to do with that team. Do you get it? So God has predestined a plan for all those who believe in him. And even in that plan, we've got to daily submit ourselves to Christ to see that plan happen. God has that plan predestined that we should walk in it. But he does not deterministically take over our will and make us do his plan. If we choose to submit to him today, then today we'll be a part of that predestined plan. If we show up to practice, right? And if we are willing to run hard and go through the plays the coach has laid out, we will have a good practice today. But if not, then we didn't have a good practice. It's still up to us. So God in no way takes away our free will. Now, I have found most believers say, God, take away my free will. I would love that. Well, then you'd be a robot. Fine, just until I'm out of this flesh, make me a robot. Put, 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 you know, program me to only obey and only to be pure and only to be holy. I am more than willing for you to do that. And God says, no, I, I made you a free-willed individual and you've got to daily deny yourself, take up the cross and follow me to be a part of that plan and that will that I have for your life. So, if we follow his plan obediently, we bear much fruit. If we obey somewhat obediently, then we bear some fruit. If we don't obey, we bear no fruit. But our fruitfulness 
does not mean we're saved. Our lack of fruitfulness does not mean we're not saved. Fruitfulness is not hinging on our eternal destiny, only on our eternal rewards. And this is where the Calvinists mess up. They look at a number of passages that are talking about our heavenly rewards, and they see, every time they see the word predestined or election, they say it's talking about salvation, when clearly in the context it's not. And I'm going to show you some examples of that in the last part of the message here today. So before we start looking at this study on the doctrine of predestination, let, let me give a, a few comments. The actual word in the Greek for predestined, proizo, is actually only six times in the New Testament. Now, if you listen to a Calvinistic preacher, the way they preach it, it's like every other word is predestined in the Bible. It's just all over the place. It's not. It's only mentioned a few times. It's not a major doctrine in the New Testament. It's a peripheral doctrine. It's just sort of a logical fact. Since God knows everything, we're not surprised that God knows everything. But to them, they're surprised. But then... They have to explain it over and over and over again because it's illogical. For us, we say God knows everything, but we're also free-willed individuals. They go together. Just because God knows the future doesn't mean he makes the future. Just because God knows the future doesn't mean God determines all the decisions that every man's going to make. That's weird. That's a bizarre thought. How would you come up with that? You'd not come up with that thought from the Bible. But this is what they got to program their people to see. They got to get the Calvinistic glasses on so they see this deterministic God, identical to the Muslim God, Allah, by the way, who is deterministically making everything happen. And you just say, well, the will of Allah, oh, the will of God. He determined it. So it's not a major doctrine. It simply means beforehand, to decide beforehand, to predetermine beforehand. But again, what they're saying is God's predetermining beforehand who will be saved and who will be damned to hell. That is completely untrue. We're going to look at the six places that predestined is mentioned. And in each case, it's talking about the plan of the believer after they believe in the Lord Sure, they become the elect, the chosen. That's great. But the plan they have is for those who believe in the Lord. And this is why the Lord says, many are called. Actually, everyone's called. <laughs> Whoever will, come. But few are the elect. Few are the chosen. Why? Because they have to surrender in their free will to believe in Jesus as Savior, and they have to believe in his name to be saved. So everyone's called, but few are willing to submit their lives to Christ. And again, election is those who have chosen in Christ, and predestination is what happens after you choose Christ and become the elect. What is that plan? And I might add again, none, none of these predestined passages have anything to do with everlasting life but reward. We have many passages in the Bible where God wants men to repent, wants men to come to him, wants men to be saved. But God is, over, God is, is, is saddened and overwhelmed at times because he sees that the destruction coming upon man and he so wants them to come to him, to believe in him, to repent, to be saved. We find this through the Old Testament. We find this in the New Testament. It would be like you're watching a guy's house on fire and you're banging on the door. <laughs> Get out of bed. Come outside. And the guy says, leave me alone. Go away. But there's a fire. Oh, I don't believe a word you're saying. I'm telling you for the last time, go away. 
Well, this is God. He's banging on the door. He sees destruction coming from the Babylonians. In the New Testament, Jesus sees the destruction coming in 70 AD with the Romans. And so, for example, in Matthew 23, 37 to 39, the Lord says, I, I wanted you to come to me, but you were not willing. So let's just ask the question. If God was determining everybody to be saved and determining everybody not to be saved, what would the Lord care if they're not willing? <laughs> He'll just make them willing. And then they'll come. So why is God... So, so really Jesus here crying out, it literally in tears, groaning, literally, that they would come to him. Why is he doing that? If he's just going to determine who's saved and determine who's not saved anyway. Do you understand? He wouldn't. He's just acting. And, and this is, it's, it, it's not real. It's not sincere, but it is. In Acts 13, 47, when the people there, the Jews, were unwilling to listen to Paul, he says to those Jews, you have judged yourself unworthy for eternal life. Again, if God had already judged them unworthy for eternal life, he would, Paul wouldn't have said this. He just would have said, yeah, you're, not, you're obviously not the elect. So God determined that you would not be the elect. And so I'm not surprised you're not believing. But that's not it. Paul says, I'm surprised you're not believing. And, and because you Jews won't listen, I'm going to go to the Gentiles. In Acts 16, 31, he says, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. So again here... <clears throat> Paul is saying it's, it's up to you. If it wasn't up to them, then the Bible's being disingenuous. And again, Ezekiel 18, God doesn't want them to die in their sin and begs them to repent. But we know not one of them did. So while God has certainly knew in advance all who would believe in Christ, it does not mean all who would not believe because he is God and knows all things. So God, God does know all things, but that doesn't mean he determined who would be saved and determined who would not be saved. He did not predestine that. It would not honor man's free will. Our day-to-day -day choices make a difference. If we pray or don't pray, if we obey or don't obey, if we get strengthened in the word or not, or if we share our faith or not. We have an example in 1 Samuel 23, where David went down and delivered the city of Israel, Kaliah, from the enemy. And he decides to live there in the city because they're receiving him. But he hears word that Saul might be coming there to trap him in the city and kill him and his men. And so David prays. And he says, God, is Saul coming here? And he says, yes. Is he going to be successful in killing me? And God said, yes. So David got up and he left the city of Keliah. And Saul never came there. And David didn't die there. So look at that story in 1 Samuel 23. God saw what would happen if the choices of man stayed that way. But if the choices of man changed, then the reality of what happened also changed. So in Calvinism, everything's so determined, why would you pray? Whatever's going to happen is going to happen. Why would you evangelize? Whoever's going to get saved is going to get saved. Whoever's not going to get saved is not going to get saved. Why would you obey? If God determines me to obey, then I'll obey. If God doesn't determine me to obey, then I'll disobey. I can't do anything about it. It takes away the responsibility of our free will. There's been many on the YouTube channel. You can see major pastors and worship leaders and guys of bands over this doctrine have left Christianity. And they have literally said unanimously, I don't think I'm one of the elect because I really don't have a desire to serve God. So I must not. So if God wants me to be the elect, he'll make me the elect. If he doesn't make the elect, there's nothing I can do about it anyway. So why worry about it? Why read the Bible? Why go to church? If I'm determined by God to go to hell, 
I might as well eat, drink, and be merry for tomorrow I die. But if I'm determined, it doesn't matter how I live, I'm going to get there either way. Do you see how damnable this doctrine is? And unfortunately, as we've been reading through Ephesians 1, a beautiful, beautiful book, beautiful, beautiful chapter, this doctrine has infiltrated the minds of many in Calvary Chapel to see something other than what is there. The Bible tells us what God's predestined. Number one, the most important thing God's predestined is Jesus to die on the cross. Way back in Genesis, at the creation story, he tells us there at the beginning that this would be what would happen in the future, that Jesus would stomp on Satan's head, but Satan would bite Jesus' heel. And uh, the son of Eve. In Acts 4, 28, to, to do whatever your hand and your purpose determined beforehand to be done, referring to Christ dying on the cross. Secondly, God predestined that the mysteries he hid in the Old Testament and before the cross, that those mysteries would be revealed after the cross in the Messiah. In 1 Corinthians 2, 7, but we speak the wisdom of God in a mystery, a hidden wisdom which God ordained before the ages of our glory. The third thing God predestined is us to be conformed into his image. There's many things in Romans 8, 29, and 30. So remember, there's six verses that mention predestination. Two of them are found in Ephesians 1. Two of them are found in Romans 9. And then you have the ones we just read in Acts 4.28 and 1 Corinthians 2.7. That's the totality of them. But here in Romans 8.29 and 30, there's several things that God predestines. For whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son, that he might be the firstborn among many brethren. Moreover, whom he predestined, these he also called. Whom he called, these also justified. Whom he justified, these he also glorified. So, God predestined that those who would come to him would eventually be in the same image of his son, Jesus. And this is exactly what's going to happen. As Christ raised from the dead and his body became that of a heavenly body, so will ours. John writes, I don't know what we'll be like, but I know that when we see him, we'll be just like him. We're going to be changed. And so right now, God's working on that even in this on earth, even in this sinful body. God's sanctifying us from glory to glory. It tells us in 2 Corinthians 4. But ultimately, when we're out of these bodies, he'll complete that work, and we will be glorified in that new body. I can't go into all of them today, but he predestined us to be called. He predestined us to be justified. He predestined us to be glorified, all found in Romans 8.30. He also predestined us to adoption of sons, we looked at this already in Ephesians, did a whole sermon on it out of Ephesians 1, 5. But also in Romans 8, 14 to 16, and Romans 8, 23, it tells us that the adoption means this, our brand new bodies. We are children of God, but when is the adoption complete? When we are in our brand new bodies. And God's predestined us to an inheritance. We did a whole sermon on this as well. Out of Ephesians 11 and Ephesians 4, 1, Ephesians 1, 11, Ephesians 1, 14. And our inheritance is kept by the power of God. What is all in our inheritance? We covered this. Our salvation, our eternal life, all the promises of God, heaven, our heavenly celestial immortal body. Christ himself. All these things and more are our inheritance. Also, we are predestined to be holy and blameless. We also talked about this in Ephesians 1.4. We are also predestined to be the redeemed, those bought out of bondage, bought out of slavery. We covered that in Ephesians 1.7. So I wish I had really done these sermons on election and predestination way back at the beginning before the chapter started. Next time when I teach Ephesians, I will. So everybody can take and really enjoy this teaching. 
Because in Calvinism, they tell you, you always need to we we worry whether you are the elect. You're the elect when you're living holy and righteous. When you start struggling, well, maybe you were never the elect to begin with. So do Calvinists have security? They, they claim their, their doctrine gives more security than any teaching, any system of, of theology. Completely untrue. They are worried constantly whether they're elect. Some of them are Christians 20 years, and they start really doubting that they were ever the elect, and the whole thing for the last 20 years has been a charade. We know we are saved because we trust in the nature of God, in the promises of God, in the faithfulness of God, in the word of God. Zero doubt in our salvation. And I'm going to cover that here in a minute. So we are also predestined, and here it is, to eternal life, no matter what, we have eternal life. You say, well, but are you sure about that? Yes. God says the moment you believe upon him, he gives you eternal life. And you'll never perish. Now, you see, if you're having eternal life and you stop having eternal life, you never had eternal life to begin with. Do you understand? If God gives you eternal life right now, and a year later, 10 years later, he stops giving you eternal life, he really never gave you eternal life to begin with. Do you get it? If God gives me eternal life, and I have eternal life as long as I keep up with good works, then really, I never had eternal life. I had eternal life possibility if I continue to live an obedient life until the day I die. You understand? So John 3.16 would not say God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. Whoever believes in him would not perish but have everlasting life. It would say whoever believes in Christ possibly, most likely, highly probable, a better chance than anybody else on earth to not perish and have everlasting life. That's not what it says, is it? It says you got it. And then once you got it, God says, you got it. I'm going to make sure it never changes. He predestines us to have eternal life and for that to never change. In John 6, 39, this is the will of the Father who sent me, that all he has given me, I should lose nothing, but should raise it up on the last day. Lose nothing. <laughs> Not one. In John 10, 28 and 29, And I give them eternal life, and they shall never perish. Neither shall anyone snatch them out of my hand. My Father who has given them to me is greater than all. He's greater in authority than Jesus. He's the first person of the Trinity. No one is able to snatch them out of my Father's hand. It is the Father's will. It is Jesus' will. The Holy Spirit was put in us, sealed in us, to never leave us, never forsake us, to guarantee our eternal life, and on the flip side of the coin, to never perish. Both are covered. Of course, you only really need to have eternal life, but God knows the thoughts of man. But does that mean I don't perish? You didn't say that. Let me say that. In 1 Peter 1, verse 4 and 5, to an inheritance incorruptible and defile that does not fade away, reserved in heaven for you, who are what? Kept by the power of God through faith for salvation, ready to be revealed in the last time. In 1 John 5, 13, These things I've written to you, believe in the name of the Son of God, that you may, what? Know that you have eternal life. John, in chapter 20, says, I, this entire book that I just wrote to you is that you would believe in Jesus and know you have eternal life. 
he now repeats that in 1 John chapter 5, saying, guys, this is all my writings have been for this very purpose, that you would not question whether you have eternal life, that you would never doubt whether you have eternal life. In, in Hebrews 13:5, God himself says, I will never leave you nor forsake you. In Matthew 28, 20, and lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. Sometimes people question, but, but, but what, what if I become a sexual deviant? Well, remember, one of the Christians in the Corinth church did that. He married his stepmom. She divorced his dad and he married her. And, and Paul says in 1 Corinthians 5, he says, you cannot find a more pagan civilization than the Roman civilization. And they think you're wicked. <laughs> they don't even, they would not even approve of that in, in the Roman society. And yet you think that you can marry your father's wife and the church is rejoicing as if you're open to whatever? He says, no. And he says very specifically about this guy in 1 Corinthians 5.15, Deliver such a one to Satan for the destruction of the flesh. Why? That his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord Jesus Christ. Do you hear that? The same thing was said in 1 Corinthians 11 when they were taking communion unworthily. God said, and some of those people that won't repent from their, their bad heart, now they're taking communion. He says, God's going to just take them home early. So they won't be judged with the world who gets judged. They didn't lose their salvation. God just says, I'm not going to let them stay on earth anymore because they're being fruitless and they're never going to be fruitful. So I'm just going to take them on to heaven now. Well, what about a person not leading a very obedient life? Oh, excuse me, I skipped one. What if somebody starts teaching heresy? Boy, there's somebody that God should mark off the list. But what do we have in 1 Timothy 1, 19 and 20? Paul says to young Timothy, Have faith and a good conscience, which some have rejected. Concerning the faith, have suffered shipwreck, of whom are Hermenides and Alexander, whom I delivered to Satan, what? That they may learn not to blaspheme. He didn't say, I damned them to hell. He said, I took the hedge of protection away from them. I, took, I, I pushed them outside the protection of the church. Just like the guy who married his father's wife, we're pushing him out of the church. He's out from underneath the umbrella of God's protection. And Satan now can just start beating up on him. And so this is how God is spanking him. So they would learn not to blaspheme. So that guy who married his father's wife would repent of that and come back. And indeed he did. In 1 Corinthians 5, we have a 2 Corinthians. And in chapter 2, chapter 5, chapter 7, he talks about how that guy came back with true repentance to the Lord. Not that he was a prodigal. All these guys are being prodigals. The guy who married his father's wife was a prodigal. The, the guy here who started teaching heresy was a prodigal. He, he got affected. These guys, Hermes Alexander, got affected by these intellectuals there in Ephesus. Paul warns Timothy in chapter 1, chapter 2, chapter 4, and chapter 6 not to be moved away from his sound doctrine by these guys. So these guys were very effective. So these young guys like Timothy got moved away from sound doctrine and and Paul said, you know what? They're very effective in teaching bad doctrine. God's going to spank them uh, until they learn not to blaspheme. Not, I'm turning them over to Satan for them to be damned to hell. He doesn't say that. The prodigal son, if he moved away to a foreign country and started living disobedience, was he still the son? <laughs> if you move out of the country, well, you're no longer a son. Now you're a stranger. No. He was a son. When his son was in the pig pen, was he still the son? Now the question the son had was, I know I'm still his son, but will he bless me as a son? 
Will he recognize me as his son after all these years of living such a disobedient life? That was the question. And he decided in his mind, my dad is the most gracious guy that is in existence, but I don't think he would recognize me as his son, but he would still hire me as the lowliest of servants. That's the best he thought his dad would be. And he worked on his speech so hard, didn't he? And he's coming home, beaten, tattered, smells like pigs. And he starts into his shtick. <laughs> Father, I have been so disobedient. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. I ask you that you make me just a lowly servant in your house. And I don't think he got his speech finished. The dad grabbed him and hugged him. The only time we ever see God in a hurry in the entire Bible is when he's running towards his prodigal son. And his dad was always ready for him. He always had the servants on call. If I ever see him, I'm going to ring this bell, make this whistle, scream at you. I don't know what he says, but I want the robe. I want the sandal. I want the ring. When my son comes into town, I want him to look like he's been a successful guy. I don't want him to look tattered and broken and let him be the gossip of the town. So he there said to his son, no, son, you've always been my son. That's never changed, never can change. You were lost and you're found. You were dead to me, but you're alive. I'm going to have the greatest feast this town has ever had. And indeed he did. When we say, Jesus, I believe that you died for my sin, you were buried and rose again the third day for my sin. The moment you believe upon him, you are a child of God. And if you become a disobedient child of God, a deviant child of God, a heretical child of God, you're always a child of God. And Rome, or Hebrews 12 says, God knows how to spank his kids. And it will not be joyful for the moment. But it ultimately will be joyful because it will bear the fruit of righteousness. Well, what about those who disobey God right up into the rapture? What about those who disobey God right up to the moment they die? Jude talks about that. In Jude 1, verse 20 to 23, he says, But you, beloved, building up yourself in the most holy faith, praying in the Holy Spirit, keep yourself in the love of God. That's going to be a hard thing, especially as we come to the last days, because lawlessness increases. The love in just mankind, blanketed across the earth, grows cold. And it affects us humans, even if we're believers. We're not immune to all the diseases of our age, spiritual or physical. We got to keep ourselves in the love of God, looking for the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ into eternal life. And then he says in verse 22, on some have compassion, making a distinction, but others save with fear, pulling them out of the fire, hate even the garments defiled by the flesh. So you got some guys that right to the moment of the rapture, right to the moment they die, what happens here is he says you, you can't stand the smell of that drug or that immoral sex or whatever it is they smell like. But then he goes on to say, but what's going to happen for all of us in verse 24 and 25 of Jude? Now to him who's able to keep you from stumbling and to present you faultless before the presence of his glory with exceeding joy. To God our Savior alone is wise, his glory and majesty, dominion and power to both now and forever. Amen. God is going to present all of us in the image of his Son. God has predestined all those who believe in him to be his elect. And all of his elect will not perish. It is the Father's will that he loses none. It is the Father's will that everyone that has come unto Jesus, he will raise them up on the last day. He is predestined that everyone who believes in him, he will grab a hold of them 
and he will not let them go. And the father says, I'm also going to grab a hold of them and not let them go. My grab, Jesus says, is more than sufficient. But my father's grab on top of that is sufficient on top of sufficient. You will not perish. Read it again in Romans chapter, or John chapter 10, verse 20 and 29. You will not perish. You will have everlasting life. Because you are a sheep who said, I choose Jesus as my Savior. We are also predestined to good works. We're going to cover that when we get to Ephesians 2.10. God prepared beforehand. It's not the actual word predestined, but it's the same concept. Good works that we should walk in them. Doesn't say God's going to deterministically make us walk in those good works. They're there for us to walk in if we are willing. I, I want to look at a few verses and we'll try to end here. Last week I preached an hour and 15 minutes. We will not repeat that. Hour and 14 minutes tops. <laughs> We're almost done. I just want to show you a few verses that you might come up afterwards and say, Hey, Brian, but... but what about this? Well, first of all, I just want to make a, a note under D in our, my notes on page 8. Is that again, we in our Western culture are very individualistic. When you hear a Calvinist talk about election and predestination, it's about you. God chose you. You are special. You are a king. You, 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 you. That's not what we find in the election. The election is about all of us together in the church. Jew and Gentile together make up the bride of Christ. Israel, the whole nation, is the elect of Christ. It's about Jesus. Our message on election and predestined is Christ-centric. When we are made in Christ, then we become the elect Together we are the elect. And so you have in John 6.44, the Calvinist saying individualistically, you, those who God predestined, will be the elect. Untrue. Look at John 6.44. This is a classic Calvinist verse. No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him, and I will raise him up on the last day. Now, how do they see that verse with the Calvinistic glasses? Everybody that was predestined before the earth was created. God already elected who would be on earth. He, or he already decided who would be on earth. He saw all of mankind and he elected those for heaven and elected those for hell before anybody was ever even on the planet. Boy, that verse 44 was a lot longer than I thought. None of that is in that verse. So the real question is, okay, John 6, 44, who is it talking about? And how does the Father draw? That's really the question. The first question is answered in the very next verse. No one comes to the Father, he says in verse 44, unless the Father draws them. But notice in verse 45, as it's written in the prophets, they shall, how many? All be taught by God. Therefore, notice the next word, everyone who has heard and learned from the Father comes to me. So this, who, who is called by the Father? Everyone. So now let's ask the question, how does the Father draw? With Calvinists, there's one way the Father draws. He predestined before time. Period. He determined before time who's the elect. That's how the Father draws. End of story. The Bible tells us all kinds of ways that God draws us. I, I don't even have all of them here. But I'm not going to read the verses, but I'm going to tell you. Number one, God draws us through creation. In Romans chapter 1, it tells us that God made the earth in such a way that no man will have an excuse on the day of judgment because creation itself, that general revelation was sufficient for man to believe there was a God and to get him to begin seeking after God. 
Secondly, through His Word. His Word is truth. We'll know the truth that will set us free. We're sanctified through the Word of God. This is specific revelation. Uh, you guys ever watch that uh, PBS uh, show, Peugeot? The French uh, guy who's... Uh, anyway, true story. You can look up his testimony. He was in his 40s and successful, rich, famous, completely broke. Not spiritually, just distraught. In a hotel, opens up the drawer, Gideon Bible. He reads it and gets radically born again. The Word of God is the way people, the Father draws us. Through His messengers, God's given prophets and He's given apostles. The fourth way is through His Son. In Hebrews 1, it says, In the last days He's spoken to us through His Son. Also the Holy Spirit. In John 16, the Holy Spirit's in the world, convicting men of sin and righteousness of judgment. <laughs> Last night, after I already sent out my notes, I was reading in Acts chapter 10. And Cornelius was drawn by the Father, by the Father sending him an angel to go tell him to get Peter. To come down and tell him. There's another way. Everyone is called by the Father. Many ways the Father's teaching us that we would learn to come to Him. There's many ways the Father is drawing man to Himself, not just determined who's the elect and who's not. Ridiculous. Here's another verse in John 16, or John 15, 16. You've probably heard this verse. You did not choose me, but I chose you. And appointed you that you go and bear fruit and their fruit remain. Whatever you ask the Father in my name, he may give you. First of all, we need to look at context. Context, context, context. I like what Don Carson says about this. He said a text without a context is a pretext for a proof text. You've heard people say, oh, I don't trust the Bible. You can make it say whatever you want to say. It's true if you don't take it in context. If I were to ask you the question, what's John 15 about? What's the first thing that would come to mind? About abiding in Christ and we bear much fruit. Right? If you abide in me, my word abides in you, you will prove to be my disciple and the Father will be joyful and he'll prune you that you bear even more fruit. Right? We know that. This chapter is about being fruitful. It's not about salvation. But again, when a Calvinist sees the word elect or choose or chosen or predestined, they see a passage on salvation. John 15 is not a passage about salvation. It's a passage about his followers who are already believers understanding their free will makes all the difference whether they will be slightly fruitful, medium fruitful, or really fruitful. It's up to them to abide in Christ. It's up to them to let God's word abide in them. It's essential for us to be fruitful. And it's a day-to-day -day battle, isn't it? And so... He's not talking, saying, I appointed you to salvation. I've chosen you for salvation. He said, I've chosen you to be fruitful. That's exactly what he says in verse 16. I appointed you. I chose you. I appointed you that you would bear fruit, that your fruit would remain, and then the power in prayer. If you look at the first eight verses of John 15, that's exactly what he says. You abide in me, my word abides in you, you bear much fruit. As my word abides in you, you will ask. As you're abiding God's word, you will pray more. You, you say, man, I need to pray more. Just study the word. You will pray more. The word of God leads a soul to pray. And that's exactly what he's saying again in verse 16. Now, in context, he is not talking about choosing the elect of all times throughout the world. If you go back to the context of John, he's talking to his 12 apostles. He's saying to the 12 apostles, 
I chose you, the 12, to be my immediate followers. That you would bear fruit. I ordained you. He did. He laid hands on them, sent them out in twos. He ordained them. He, he sent them out to go and preach the, the gospel and, and to heal the sick and to raise the dead and cast out demons. And they did. So you 12 are my chosen I laid hands. In actuality, in, in John 6, he says, Did I not choose you, the twelve, and one of you is a demon? <laughs> Referring to Judas. He's not talking about the choosing process of all men, of all mankind. He's talking about the twelve apostles and about them being fruitful, not being saved. One more. We looked at this last week quickly. In John 3.16, if you understood Calvinism, John 3.16 wouldn't read like it does. Here's how, here's how a Calvinist reads John 3.16 and also verse 17. For God so loved the elect that he gave his only begotten son, that whoever was unconditionally elected before the foundation of the world should not perish, but have everlasting, have eternal life. For God sent his son into the world to condemn the world and in order that only the elect might be saved through him. What does it actually say? John 3.16. It's a wonderful, happy, joyful verse for all people, not just for an elect group of people. For God so loved the what? World. That he gave his only begotten son that what? Whoever believes in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. When you have any doctrine out there, in this case Calvinism, and their doctrine would take verses of the Bible and make them the opposite meaning of what they actually mean, you have heresy. God wishes all men to be saved. Calvinism says God does not wish all men to be saved. God only wishes the elect to be saved. The Bible says Christ died for all our sins. They do not believe that. That would be futile for Christ to, to have to pay for the penalty of the sin of the non-elect. So according to Calvinism, Christ only bore the sin of the elect not of all. So the opposite is true. Christ died for the sins of all. No, Christ died for the sins of only some. God wishes that all men would be saved. No. God only wishes for the elect to be saved and he is equally joyful in those he's damning to eternity. And if you understand God, you will equally be joyful in those who are damned as well. Now, go into all the world and preach the gospel. Uh, to who? How? What's the message? Do you see how confusing it is? We have a message everyone can believe. Christ died for their sins. They've already been paid for. If they receive Christ, the sins go away permanently, buried in the deepest sea, scattered as far as the east of the west, to never be remembered again. If in Christ, then their sins now are back to their account, and they have to pay for them, which the Bible says, the least sinner, it'll still take an eternity in darkness and hell for those sins to be paid for. We are not out trying to make good people better. We are out trying to save people from eternal hell. Let me just ask you this question. If your neighbor's house was on fire, would you go bang on your neighbor's door? Now, if your neighbor did not want to open that door and he was reluctant and he didn't believe you, what would you do? Go home and go, well, I did knock on his door. No. 
you, you would be passionate. Read 2 Timothy 4. Paul tells Timothy, exhort, rebuke with all long suffering and patience. Fulfill your ministry. Do the work of an evangelist. Christ, we have, we have the most beautiful, loving gospel message. God loves man. Do they know that? Let's tell them. Let's just tell them. You know what? God loves you. Do you know how many people have been committing suicide? Guys, this last year, we're talking hundreds of thousands of people did not know God loved them. God has desired that you would believe in him. The Father is drawing you through me, through his word, through this track, through letting you know right now that he wants you to be saved. And he has a plan set out for your life till the day you die, that you would bear much fruit, that you would be fruitful, and that your joy would be made full in Christ and in living out that plan. Is that the truth? Do you know that about yourself? Are you glad you know that about you? You know, when I go to pray, I immediately feel my sinfulness. This body, oh, the things I want to do, I don't do. The things I do want to do, I don't do. Oh, God, help me. But immediately when I feel that burden, I feel an incredible joy that I know Jesus and then I can come into that boldly into that throne of grace and get all the grace and mercy I need. And he is there like the prodigal son's dad just to hug me and to say, man, I'm going to make you into the image of my son. I'm going to make you holy and without blame. I'm going to give you a heavenly body, Brian. I can't wait till you see it. And you're not going to be fighting this sinful body, this sinful world. I'm going to put that devil in the pit and he's not going to mess with you anymore. And I'm just, oh, Lord, I'm so thankful that I know you. Now, our country is sort of fickle, isn't it? I mean, if you were over in Afghanistan witnessing, you'd probably get the same reaction every time. It'd be nice to be able to predict that. Not a good reaction. But in our country, you just don't know what you're going to get. Most of the time, you're going to get somebody indifferent. Oh, that's nice. You little, simple-minded person. If I don't want to upset your world, but if you understood science, you'd be an atheist. But go on your little merry way and believe in Santa Claus and the Easter Bunny and in Jesus. Just go ahead. That's, most of the time, people are just sort of indifferent. Like, you're a total idiot. Paul said that. That was part of what happened in 1 Corinthians 1. He said, I go to the Greeks, to the Gentiles, they think it's foolishness. I go to the Jews, it's just offensive to them. It's a stumbling block that their Messiah has already come and they didn't know. And, and you got this guy telling them that they need to abandon trying to keep the law and abandon trying to be good through the law and just believe in Jesus only to the Jews. It was infuriating. We're going to get those, aren't we? Believe in Jesus. You're racist. <laughs> but it's okay. It's okay. Paul says, I'll show you in my body the scars that I preach the cross. Jesus said, those who suffer with me shall also reign with me. Yes, preaching the gospel is affliction. It is. It's hard to be rejected. You will definitely be rejected, probably more than 50% of the time. But let me tell you guys, when you are successful, <laughs> You're always successful, right? I mean, the Bible says that in, in 2 Corinthians 2. He says we are always led in triumph in Christ when we preach the gospel because it's a beautiful fragrance unto God. When we go out to preach the gospel, he says in Romans 10, how lovely is the feet of those 
on the mountain who are spreading the good news. You're asking yourself the question, well, why don't they believe? And the Lord says, they've not heard. How can they hear? How can they believe if they haven't heard? And then we ask the Lord, well, why haven't they heard? And he said, because they don't have a preacher. And then we say, God, why don't they have a preacher? And he says, because no one was sent. And he said, now I'm sending you. I'm sending you to go and preach that they might hear, that they might believe. Worst case scenario, a seed is going in their heart. And, he's, and Isaiah says, when the word goes forth, it never returns void. But what happens? The next person who shares, it's watering that seed. They think, oh, I planted a seed. No, you didn't. You actually watered a seed that their grandma put in there 20 years ago. You're actually watering a seed their roommate in college put. And you're actually the 10th person who watered that. And then you come along and the next person says, hey, God loves you. What do I do need to be saved? It's like, man, am I a good evangelist or what? I am good. Three words and I got man, I'm, I'm anointed. Yeah, we do have those joyful times to get to be the one to pick the, fruit, pick the fruit. But either way, we're always led in triumph in Christ. What does Paul say in 2 Corinthians 5? Let the love of Christ constrain you. We reason thus, if one were to die for all of us, should it not be that all of us are willing to die for him? What's the next words? You are an ambassador of Christ. Christ is pleading through you. Be reconciled to God. For he who knew no sin became sin for us that we might become the righteousness of Christ. The next chapter, when you hear these words, don't say later, I'll think about it. No, today is the day of salvation. I wonder how many of those people who committed suicide in this last year, would it have made a difference if somebody knocked on their door or said at a gas pump, hey, I just want you to know Jesus loves you. And can I tell you what Jesus' love did for my life? I was revealed by God that I'm a sinner and my sins are separating me from God and, and there was no hope that I was going to be justly judged by a true and righteous judge and the wages of sin is death for all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. But the gift of God is salvation through Jesus Christ. He died paying all your sin. He rose again on the third day. He was buried and on the third day he rose again from the dead conquering your sin. And all you have to do is right now believe in him as your savior and he will give you eternal life and you shall never perish. And now you can start walking with him. Read the Bible and just say, yes, Lord, speak to me. He will. And just follow him. That's it. Well, I'm sure you're trying to get me into church. Nope, I'm not. Where do you go to church? I don't know if I want to tell you yet. Because going to church is not what we're talking about here. Oh, okay, well, I'm saved once I start reading the Bible. No, you can never read the Bible ever, and you're saved. The thief on the cross never read the Bible. He's in heaven. And I'm sure there's tens of thousands that have died on their deathbed who never read the Bible. And they never went to church, and they never tithed, and they never witnessed, and they never obeyed, and they have no reward in heaven. <laughs> no, we're not saved by our works but works are fruitful and they rejoice my Savior and I want to be fruitful to rejoice my Savior. But no, it's not about trying to get you to our church. Don't feel like you have to get them at our church. That's not the motive. That's not, we have nothing to sell. We're not salesmen. We're not peddling anything. We truly only want them 
to know Jesus. And yes, do we want them to get in a solid church? Yes. Do we want it to be here? No, not necessarily. We want the shepherd to get the sheep where they're supposed to be, right? And he knows. And God made some of his sheep to be Baptists. I don't know why. He made some of his sheep to be Pentecostal. I don't know why. He made some of his sheep to be non-denominational. And we're all strange. We'd probably be better off if we were Baptist or Pentecostal. But we just want God where he wants his sheep, right? He knows where to take them. That's not what we're out peddling. We're not peddling church attendance. Oh, Raymond's got three new believers at church today. Oh, three stars. Here you go. Raymond, come on back in the secret membership room. There you are. You're going to win the prize, the banana split at the end of the year if you keep doing this. No, we're not, we're not out peddling, selling something. We are preachers declaring the good news. And boy, do we got good news. There is never going to be better news. Amen. Well, Lord, we thank you for your word this day. We thank you, God, that you brought us into yourself. Lord, there's so many things to know about this election and predestination that are true and pure and cause us and our free will to be more responsible and more fervent to live for you with all our heart. And Lord, we ask that we would just surrender ourselves anew, repent anew afresh today to say, God, I repent that I've only been partially fruitful. Lord, I want to be fully fruitful. Lord, I repent that I'm seeking you, but not with my whole heart. Oh God, give me a whole heart. Fix my heart, God. Change my undivided heart. Help me, Lord, weed out the love of this world and the love of the flesh and the boastful pride of life and help me to love you above all things with all my heart, all my soul, all my mind, all my strength. Not that we would be children, but that, that we would be children that rejoice your heart because we do love you, God. We love you. We choose to love you every day when we deny ourselves, take up the cross and are willing to suffer in this life that we might reign with you. We yield ourselves now in Jesus' precious name.